Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. What's up, everybody? My name is Indy, and the gentleman next to me with the golf hat. No, it's Europe. What do you call it? European what? It's, it's my Italian old man hat. Italian old man hat. Oh man's a, that's a brand, isn't it? Oh man, uh, my, my Italian brand. Uh, that, but anyways, that's Mr. Jay Powell from the Powell Group Consulting, and welcome to Indie Game Business. We've got Christian Fonisbeck. He's the head of IP development from Leverage, and the topic of discussion today is. The nine most common mistakes that game IPs and brands make. So this is going to teach you about stuff, uh, to not to do stuff before it happens. And if you've already made these mistakes, well, then you already know them, but this will just reinforce that. So, or or maybe you them. made them and you don't know them. I mean, Oh, there uh, you go. Made the that, mistakes and you don't know that it was too. a mistake for sure. All right. Well, welcome, Christian. Thank you for coming on. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, Chris, you, you've been here before at our conferences, but we're going to start from the beginning anyway. So tell everybody how you originally got into games and then walk us through your career up to this point. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Well, I, like a lot of people, I started out being fascinated by, on the one hand, games and on the other hand, fiction. So when I found Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of brought those two things together. So I spent a big part of my youth playing that. And then uh, I studied film, actually, at university, but I was still playing games. And that towards the end of my uh, education, I wrote a paper on the future of stories. And I realized that film was not really cutting edge anymore. It was happening in games now. So I started a games company telling stories, made 35 games in that with uh, all kinds of clients and financing and entertainment and learning and advertising. Spent four years making an art game with Hollywood A-listers and, and so on. Um, and then I became head of IP development at uh, Nordisk Games, which is a European game investor. And right there, I met two brand guys, and we realized that the whole industry had the same problem. Nobody understood IPs or brands. So we've been consulting on that for five years. Um, and, you know, we've worked with small studios, big studios. We've worked with Bandai Namco. We've done... Four projects for play on. We're on our second project. We're super massive. So, yeah, I think we've had 50 clients in, in five years or something like that. So, so basically, it boils down to, yeah, you're familiar with IP, right? It's like <laughs> Pretty, pretty familiar by now, yes. All right. So we've got the nine mistakes that, that you've, you've laid out for us. Do you want me to start with number one or number nine? I think, how about a countdown? Let's start with number nine and then count down. 
All right, so we're going to go through these things. If you are listening, watching, wherever you are, and you have questions, just chop, uh, drop them in the YouTube chat or Twitch or wherever you are or over on the Discord, and we'll get those answered as well. So mistake number nine, underestimating your need for long-term value. Yeah. So a lot of us just want to make a game, right? So... Everybody has this idea that, you know, we're building, we have a little band here. We have a, a crew that can make a game. Our one and only goal is to make a hit game. Um, and the problem is that once you get a hit game, you kind of realize that hits tend to disappear after a little while. So what you really needed was a lasting entertainment property. Now, that means if you have that, then you can make more games and people will know, oh, it's number two, it's number three, and so on. And potentially, you can even move into TV or whatever. And the problem is, once you have a hit, if you don't have the things that are needed to make an entertainment property, you have to start again. So there's a few things that, like having a tempo character, like having um, an emotional journey that people enjoy and that they want to take again, building a brand so you're positioned in the market. All these things are what makes your property last after it's become a hit. So does that make sense to you? If, 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 if you get to the hit without having these things in your game, you have to start from zero and hope you get lucky again. Yeah, because it, it is one of those things that you have to plan ahead even if you don't plan on planning ahead if that makes any sense at all but yeah i mean that's but that's perfect because the problem is that all these ip stuff with the character and the emotions and, and even the brand stuff that's not necessarily what's going to get you to having a hit what's going to get you to having a hit is primarily great gameplay and you know word of mouth and this is really exciting and so on but the problem is once you get the hit then those are the things that will make it last and that is what makes you build able to build a sustainable company. And that's what a lot of people underestimate. So the tough thing is you have to invest in long-term thinking from the start. Which, which is very complex, especially if you don't have a long-term plan or you're a small studio and it's like, we're just going to make this one game. But I mean, you look at things like Fall Guys or some of these titles that uh, Among Us is another example. I mean, they obviously didn't plan originally on long-term IP success because, right. quite frankly, for a long time, the game wasn't a hit. And then when it was a hit, you begin to have to scramble. I mean, as big as Epic is, I remember when Fortnite hit and yeah. my entire LinkedIn feed was nothing but people in, at Epic sending out notes saying, we're hiring for literally everything. So, yeah. you know, come in and do this. So... On one hand, you have to manage that expectation and don't spend 80% of your time planning on an IP before you got a good hit. But on the other hand, you've got to have some sort of plan in mind or you're going to get. Yeah. The thing is also that the publishers are wising up to this and they have been for years. So to be quite brutally blunt, a good game is not enough anymore. You know? It used to be, it used to be that, hey, you can just have a great gameplay and the publishers will pick you up. Today, having great gameplay is the baseline. If you don't have that, forget it. 
but you also have to have an emotional connection, something that can potentially become an IP long-term and so on. I can promise you the publishers are thinking that from the very first pitch you do. So you're actually only pitching half a game or half a project if you're not pitching the IP potential as well. All right, so number eight, making games about things instead of about characters. Yeah, so that's the thing, right? A lot of games are really about spaceships or magical items or portals or interesting worlds. But the thing is, that's not what connects, right? That's, you're really, if you're, if you're doing that, you're basically making a toy. And what we see happening is that the whole industry is transitioning from toys to entertainment. And of course, it's still, as I say, about the gameplay. And of course, that is the biggest part of your budget and resource and planning and work hours. But again, if you're not creating a relationship with the player, then an emotional relationship, then you're really not going to stand out. And the tricky thing is that emotional stories, the place things get emotional is between characters. And it's not between the player and things. It's not between the player and worlds. It's between characters. So, you know, you think of the big sort of IPs, just think of the female action heroes we've had, you know, like Lara Croft and uh, uh, the girl from Control and, you know, the insane pick girl and, and, and so on. What makes them um, come alive and be memorable is the fact that they have relationships to other characters. And it doesn't mean you have to go full 3D. That can work in, in pixelated games as well. But that's the thing. Be, be, be careful about making games about things. Does that make right, sense? So we've got a question already from Gustav on YouTube. Is Rovio a good example then with Angry Birds? Well, Rovio is a perfect example, yeah, because that's exactly what they did. And, and, and of course, I don't think they had a long-term IP plan when they made Angry Birds. But it became a huge hit, and because it had characters in it, they were able to further develop those characters and give them, a, they had a relationship to the green pigs and they had relationships with each other and so on. So they were able to build the IP bigger and bigger because they had those characters already. Um, it's a challenge. If, if you've made a game about triangles and squares, it's going to be tough to expand it like that, right? Well, you put googly eyes on them, Christian. I mean, that's just the, the default answer for, to turn any kind of inanimate object into inanimate object is googly eyes. That's the way it, they it works. Right. Yeah, but the problem with that is if you've got a million players who love bashing triangles into squares, I promise you, your hardcore fans will go absolutely crazy if you put googly eyes on them. Because that's <laughs> not what they've invested their time in. You're changing it. You're breaking the thing they love. So it's really difficult to change things once they've become established. All right. So we've got a question from Discord as well. Survival games are the complete opposite. Where's the relationship in survival games? Well, honestly, it's not necessarily there. I'm not saying that you can build an IP with anything. But um, in horror franchises, it's often the villain who's the temporal character. So think of Alien, uh, think of Alien Isolation, right? You're carrying on a, a many-year tradition of 
having an emotional relationship with that scary character. No reason you can't build that into a survival game. Well, if you look at a lot of the licensing outside of games that Minecraft has done, very little of it is for the two characters. And I forget their right. names. I know Steve and, and I forget the woman's name. But anyway, the licensing is done with creepers and you know the cows and the environments and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. that's it. But Minecraft is a is a is a is a actually a pretty good example because that's an example where you have an enormous success and then they're throwing millions and millions of dollars of trying to reverse engineer an IP into that success. And they've just, you know, had to quit again and again and restart. And they tried with Telltale and they tried with this and they tried with that. So of course it's a brand, of course it's a big success, but making it into a character IP has been really difficult. And we've seen the same thing with Candy Crush, where, you know, originally it was just candy, and then it became this enormous success. And King spent years trying to reverse engineer characters into the character uh, Candy Crush universe with YouTube videos and all sorts of things. And in the end, they had to give up. And the rule at King now is don't make a game without a character because it caps the future success. It also means don't invest in games without a character. All right, folks. So, well, I don't know if we're going to get through all nine or not, Christian, because you're already causing so many questions, and that's a wonderful thing because it makes <laughs> our life easier. So, uh, from Discord, from a dev in a third world country, what steps should we make to secure an IP? Well, when you say secure an IP, you could mean two things, right? You could mean how do we protect the thing we've made, or you could mean how do we find somebody else's IP that we can license and put on top of our gameplay. So, I'm assuming you mean secure as in protect. Um, and I think he actually means secure as in get. As in what, sorry? As in acquire an IP. Acquire an IP. Okay. So if it's about that, then you need to go to a licensing agent. There are licensing agencies out there, and they have tons of IPs that they license out. So some of them even have online catalogs you can go through. And you find it, and you request the right to license it. There may be a due diligence process you have to go through, or sometimes you can just pay an amount online. Oh, that's um, yeah. Actually, he does mean to protect. I was wrong. He does mean to. Well, <laughs> the thing about protecting is that um, you are actually protected naturally in most countries. So you have the copyright for something that you've designed, so long as you can prove you've designed it. The problem is that, of course, people might copy your success all over the world. And then you have to go after them and it costs money to go after them. So honestly, you're usually protected from the beginning. Just go with it. If you have a massive success, you can probably get somebody else to pay for the lawyers that go and kill the people who copy you because now you've got massive success. Does that make sense? It is. And, and copyright and IP and all that stuff is, it is confusing, especially when you're dealing with stuff all over the world. Um, well, the thing, thing to remember, don't worry about it, because if you don't get a success, it doesn't matter. And if you do get a success, you'll have the money to go after it. Very true. All right, let's go to number seven, underestimating uniqueness and relatability. So this is the thing. I mean, we're focusing very much on narrative IP. So that means we're talking about characters in the games and so on. Now, uniqueness is all about your character has to be different from all the other characters out there. Otherwise, you cannot own it in a court of law. So
So, for example, historically correct games using, I don't know, Napoleon or Adolf Hitler or whatever, you can't own it. It's in the public domain. That character is in the public domain unless you make it really, really unique. So that's number one. It has to be different enough for you to be able to say, we invented it. And my favorite example is Shovel Knight, right? It's a blue knight with a shovel. It's clearly original. It has not cost a lot of money to design. There's, it's easy to defend in a court of law. So that was uniqueness. The second part is relatability, which is basically people have to recognize their own real-life emotions in the story you're telling in your game. So, for example, Lara Croft, she's looking for her father in the ruins, right? She's been doing that for how many years now? 30? There's that whole sense of loss and the relationship to the parent and so on. Even if you haven't um, experienced it, you can imagine it. And, you know, not many people have tried being a wizard. But Harry Potter is relatable because he's being bullied, you know? So finding that sort of universal emotion that other people can recognize from real life is really important because that's where the emotion comes in. All right, so what about the other way around in using public domain to establish original titles? I mean, I would say the most famous example would be Disney, you know, where all of their... Well, not all, but the vast majority of their major motion pictures are actually adapted from history or from existing fairy tales. Fairy tales. Yeah, yeah. So the thing that Disney does when they do it is they do a unique visual design. So what they can protect is that this fairy tale princess looks exactly like this. And you can then protect that. So... One of the things we see a lot is, for example, people are doing, you know, we're doing dragons. So we've got a lot of dragons in this game. The problem is if we go out and Google, you know, cartoon dragon, and we can see a lot of other dragons that look exactly the same, then you cannot protect it in a court of law because you did not invent it. There's too many of them. But, you know, think of Snow White, Disney. That's protectable in a court of law. It was not in the original fairy tale that Snow White looked like that. So the the name Snow White then becomes associated with the character and the visuals are protectable and Wango. Disney now owns 70% of all children's IPs. No kidding. Which is crazy. But yes. I mean, it's, we did a game years ago where we were working on it, never actually made it to the light of day, but on The Wizard of Oz. And, and like the reality was all of Frank Baum's books are in the public domain. You can make a Wizard of Oz, anything, but you can't make it look like Dorothy and everyone that was in the movie. And that's where that's where that difference comes in. It's the same with Disney. You can make a Snow White game. Yeah. You just can't make her look like Disney made her look. Exactly. All right. Number six, not integrating IP and gameplay. Yeah. So the point here, of course, is that it's all about the gameplay. But at the same time, it's all about the story and the IP. So these things should be connected. So when you're planning your game and you're planning, you know, level one has these missions and then you progress with this equipment and level two has these missions and then you progress with these, this equipment, you should be stacking your story on top of it. It should feel like I'm, I'm getting this equipment 
because I've completed this part of the story. So the gameplay and the IP should be really closely integrated. So the reason I'm getting health is also connected to the emotional goals I'm fulfilling and so on. So this is part of what makes a game IP unique because the actions you take and the emotions you feel are in concert. So how do you most effectively do that? I mean, because you can look at, there's a whole lot of integrations between, you know, stuff. We've been playing Baldur's Gate 3. There's obviously a lot of emotion. It's got to be yeah. one of the horniest games I have ever played in my entire life because everybody is just like ready to go at any given time. But then how do you integrate that into gameplay with something like Mario Brothers, where there's not a lot of emotion in it other than frustration when you can't make a jump or something along those lines? Well, I'm not so sure about Mario Brothers, but Baldur's Gate, although I haven't played it, I mean, I would I would imagine that it's all about stacking the turning points and the game progression points so that they happen at the same time. So basically, it means that you're not going on a mission just to, you know, get object X. You're going on a mission to save person Y. And along the way, there are, you know, emotional beats so that when you save person Y and you get object X as a reward and you level up, all these things come together. I feel the emotional release that the story has reached its uh, emotional beat at that point. And I get the gameplay satisfaction of having acquired a new item and leveled up and so on. All right. So what about number five? Because it actually integrates into all this too. Uh, not enough story. Yeah, so we see this more than we would have expected, which is that a lot of games, if we come in at the halfway point as consultant and we're being asked, so why, you know, the environments are great, the gameplay is great, the character designs are great, why isn't the story working? It's quite often that there's just not enough of it. So, you know, you'll get a little bit of story and then you've got three hours of gameplay and then you get a little bit of story and maybe there's a little few tidbits along the way but there's three hours to the next bit of story. So to keep that emotion going, you need to have layers of story. You need to have an A plot, you need to have a B plot, you need to have a C plot, and they need to be weaved always all the way through the game. So the easiest form to explain it is movies, right? Where you would have an A plot, which would be, I don't know, stop the nuclear reactor from melting down. But you would have a B plot, which is, you know, there's a romance going on. And while he's or she's trying to stop the reactor from melting down, there's a man who she's trying to save or there's a heart he or she is trying to win and so on. And then on the C plot, there's the evil something, something who's also doing something on the side. So, you know, stories are very much about asking questions and then forcing the characters, that is the player, to go through trials to answer those questions. Will the boy get the girl? Will the girl save the man will the and so on so it's all about asking these questions and forcing the player to go through emotional beats to get there and then layering them on top of each other so there's enough of them one of my and i know i have talked about this on the podcast before but one of my favorites in terms of layering those story aspects is always the fallout series it's like you'll have these multiple quests or this large plot line but then you start looking at the computers or the environmental storytelling that's just in an area and you get all these like little storylines that go along with it. Yeah. And so there's always something interesting, no matter where you are in that game. 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, my favorite is, uh, is Bloodborne, um, which is also f chock full of all those things, right? There's all these little stories everywhere. Every time you pick up an item, there's a story, and it all fits together, but you can't quite see how. I love that. All right, let's go number four, underestimating the universe. Yeah, so that's really about, you know, stories are not just about what happens now. It's not just about, you know, oh, I just woke up today and I want to go on a quest. Stories are very much about what happened before the game started, before the story started. What was it that brought the character to this point? What was it that brought the world to this point? And that's where it's very important to build the world and build the backstory because that's what gives it this feeling that, you know, it's a world that's lived in. And again, Bloodborne is my favorite example of this, where the player is actually not the main character in this story, really, I would say. The, the big story has already happened. The, the reason Yarnum is so ruined and all these things are broken and there are gods in the sewers and so on is because of this plague that happened before. And why did the plague happen? Only slowly as you go through the game do you piece together all these things that happened before. And this is what gives it that atmosphere. This is a real place. It feels authentic. And I think the... If you ask me, the way to the way to do that is is to write the backstory that is what happened before the game started, and write it quite detailed. And then, when your whole crew knows what that is, they can build the world based on that. It's almost as if you're making, you know, an a Greek vase with a perfectly beautiful uh, drawing on it of the whole story and so on, but then you smash it. And you take the pieces and you spread them all over the game and you let the players slowly in their heads put that vase together, right? That's what it's like playing Bloodborne. When you get to the end, you've got half a vase, but you've got sort of the contours of it. You have a feeling of what happened. And reality is like that, right? You never really get the whole story. There's always more just beyond the hedgerow or, you know, beyond the horizon. And... If you don't create that feeling, the, the game world tends to feel a bit flat because there's only what you see and you know there's no more. Yeah. I absolutely love the vase analogy. That is, I had never thought of it that way, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right because you do. You have all these little stories that wrap around the vase, but then you shatter it and you have to go find all your story pieces. So, and, and this is- and I'd say, that, sorry, and oh, I'd say the, the mystery of it is not a bug. It's a feature, right? The fact that I'm trying to piece this together in my head, that's part of the fun. And that's why YouTube is full of videos of people trying to piece together the Bloodborne story. And some of them are, are pretty damn good. Yeah, it, it's amazing how deep some of these, you know, how, how far does this iceberg go in, in the um, theory, which is, it shows us more about the passion of our players because some of these things, it's like the, the developers didn't even think that far ahead. But yeah. the players in the community have, come together and built this entire theory behind everything. One of the questions that comes up a lot when we're talking about pitching, when you're pitching that, you know, your game to that publisher is how much do you, you know, how much do you talk about the story versus the gameplay when you've got a 20, 30 minute meeting coming up at Gamescom in two weeks? How much do I talk about story versus gameplay? Um, so 
<laughs> it, it's actually an old challenge, which is, you know, on the one hand, there's always this story versus gameplay. It's like, what's most important? The thing is, they're both important. You know, it's like, I think it was Oscar Wilde said, you have to, a genius is somebody who can hold two opposing modes of thought in his head and retain the ability to function, right? That's what you have to do. You have to be both believe that the gameplay is the most important thing and you have to believe that the story is the most important thing and you have to get these things to work together. I think part of the confusion comes in that we think of when people ask you, so what genre is this? The natural inclination is to say it's an RTS or, you know, it's an FPS or it's a 4X strategy game or whatever. And all of that is true. But there's a second genre here, which is what's the story genre. And you, you can have two different answers for that. So the gameplay genre is one thing, but the story genre is another. So if we have an FPS, for example, you could have a first-person shooter that was a war story, right? Call of Duty. But you could also have a first-person shooter that was a gangster story. Or it could be a love story. You're shooting your way to love or whatever. So we have to suddenly understand two genres here. And I don't think it's gameplay is more important or story is more important. I think they're both more important and you have to get them to work together. I like is that. that what you asked? No, that is, that's exactly what I asked. But you so often hear, okay, leave the story, you know, to the side for a little bit, or, you know, if it yeah. is a classic narrative game, it's like focus on the story and then touch on the game. But I love the idea of you have to think of them together and look match up your gameplay genre with your story genre. And then you get games like, what was it? Um, Love Dungeon or the game from... Yeah, Boyfriend Dungeon or yes, something like that. That one, which completely throws yeah. all of it on its head because yeah. you're romancing weapons, you know, so... And Persona, right? Um, things like that. I like that a lot. All right. So number three, the team's writer is not managed by story experts. Yeah. So we, this is another one we see a lot, um, which is basically that, you know, you have a 10 man team, 20 man team, 100 man team. And there's not very many writers on the crew. Often there's one and it's a female. And she's not a partner in the company because the company was originally founded by three tech heads or gameplay experts or whatever. So nobody understands what she's saying, basically. You know. So what happens is that she will come back or he will come back with the script and or the storyline. And it will be a big piece of work that's integrated all the input she's got from level designers and gameplay designers and concept artists and, and art direction and so on. And she's finally gotten all this to work because it's difficult to get it to work. It's, 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 it's like a, a Swiss watch with all these cogs that fit together. That's what a story is. And then since nobody else actually understands what she's doing or how a story works, everybody just starts reaching into this engine and removing cogs and saying, we should replace this cog with a rubber monkey. That would be really cool. I saw it on TV yesterday. You're laughing, but that, Happens. Oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, two years later, she's being overruled on a daily basis by the head of combat because he owns 20% of the company and she doesn't own anything and he can fire her ass. And nobody understands why the story doesn't work. So 
my point is, you know, it's difficult to manage a programmer if you don't understand programming. How do you think you can manage a story writer if you don't understand story? And I would wager that 90% of game directors understand gameplay 10 times better than they understand story. Yeah. And that's what I mean. No, I agree. And there are, you know, experts out there that can be brought in on a freelance basis, you know, consultants, things like that. I mean, like you all. And then right. you don't always have it all in-house, but it is a such an important part of having a successful franchise that you've got to be thinking about it. And it's, to be honest, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to do a good game story because, you know, a game is a very complicated technological project. Um, and of course, it's so difficult just to get all the tech and all the gameplay and all the level design and all the graphics and all the subcontractors and all the sounds and all the music and everything to fit together. And then for the writer to come in and say, yeah, but the emotional beat is not working. It's very easy to just say, okay, look, we have a deadline. Stop, just stop talking. That's, I, I understand it. It's really difficult. And, and, and the dark secret of the big, Projects like God of War, which gets super emotional in like six minutes, is that they kept redoing it until it worked, right? They had the money to say, well, it's not working, let's redo it. It's not working, let's redo it. The Witcher 3 was in the sound studio for a solid year re-recording dialogue, right? So I know it's difficult. It's really difficult to bring all these things together into a coherent emotional experience so my one piece of advice if you want to skip all that and just try to get even a small studio to work together on a single story is let the writer educate the rest of the team on how story works everybody needs to get on board with the vocabulary for what the story is and everybody needs to understand the story in depth while they're working so there's a need for this constant communication between the story people and the non-story people because otherwise people are going to come back with rubber monkeys and say we have to put this in because we've spent 300 man hours on it or or it was a marketing bullet point and it has to be in there that's not that's not as bad as it used to be back in the days of printing boxes and putting them on shelves but you still right. do get a lot of well you know we told them there'll be rubber monkeys in this game so therefore we have to have it and but that's fine so long as we've had time to write the rubber monkeys into the story. The, the problem comes when, you know, 75% of the production, somebody says, let's put a rubber monkey in there. And the only thing we can remove is the love interest. And you've got the writer saying, uh, you do know this is a love story and you've just replaced the love interest with the rubber monkey. Fuck off. We, you know, we need to finish the game. Let's just do it. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all the speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket.
Where so for for the small indie studios who don't have the resources to bring on you know a full time narrative story person, yeah. where should they start? If you don't have a story person on board, I'm not sure you should be making a story game. Um, but that doesn't mean to say you have to have a world class expert. I mean, you just have to have somebody who's dedicated enough to learn it while they're doing it. I mean, if if you're a newly started st studio, your gameplay team is not going to be AAA world class. Your technology team is not going to be AAA world class. But they're all dedicated to their craft, and they all intend to become that. So if you have a story person who's intending to become that, that's what you need. All right. So well, just to tag onto that, what you don't need is, hey, I used to do Dungeons and Dragons. I'll do this over the weekend. <laughs> and that happens more than you think. You know, it's like, right, we've got a really dedicated team on tech, gameplay, environment design, everything. Oh, and Fred used to be our DM. He's going to write the story by Monday. Don't do this, please. I beg you. I, I, I'm laughing because I've seen that too, and and it never never turns out well because chances are your DM is not available through the entire process. You didn't bring them on to the team full time, or in some cases you did, and they're also the lead programmer, and they have other sh they need to be doing. In addition, the, the problem to the problem with that goes back to you know you can't manage a professional domain that you don't understand, mm -hmm. and if none of you understand story and none of you respect it. You probably shouldn't be doing it. Just like you probably shouldn't be programming if you don't really think programming is very important. Right? No, I agree 100%. <laughs> so number two, and y'all keep in mind, if you got questions, pop them in here because this is, this is where you're going to get them answered by the experts. Number two is you're starting the brand conversation too late. Right. So... When we're looking at these projects, there's there's really two sides to building an IP, building a franchise on, on the IP side. And the one thing is all the stuff that's in the game, and the other thing is how you put the game into the market. So when you look into the game, it's about, right, who's your temporal character? What's the emotional journey? Can we own it? What are the, what are the others doing? And so on. But the second part is the brand. So... This is something people think, no, we don't need to think about all that because that's the publisher's problem. Now, what the brand is about is how are you going to position this game in the market? So think of the market like a landscape. And if you're going out with a certain type of gameplay, there are a number of other games out there with that type of gameplay. If there aren't, then you, and you've got something completely new, I agree. All bets are off. Good luck with that. It's good. You know, that can be brilliant or it can be pure innovative speculation. We'll see. But the chances are there are other games with the same kind of gameplay. And you are going to be taking, hopefully, fans away from those games. You're going to be taking their attention away from those games and over to your game. So the brand, starting the brand conversation early means let's look at the competitors. What are they doing? How will we be judged next to them? And how can we position ourselves in a way so that we're close enough to them that we're getting those fans who like that sort of thing, 
but we're different enough so that we stand out and people notice us and will be remembered and they can find us on Steam or wherever. So the whole idea of starting the brand conversation early is to start looking around you. You can't just hide and make your game and hope. You can make your game, but you should be out there checking out what else is out there. And you should be thinking actively about how are you going to communicate the joys of your game so that it contrasts to the joys of those other games. And there's some really um, interesting lessons there because one of the challenges, especially for indie studios, um, is that, I, and I've I've been an indie game maker myself, and I've been totally passion-driven on some projects. And the big problem is that the people you first appeal to are very different from the bigger market. So the early adopters, the people who will seek out new stuff and who will burrow down into a niche genre and find your game before anybody else, those are really great core fans, but they're not like anybody else. And they're really not like the mainstream market. So that's a challenge because those people will find your game, especially if you're in early access or you're doing Kickstarter or something like that, and they will love it. And they don't mind that it's not finished and they understand, you know, the deep crafting system and the fact that it's a looter shooter and the fact that you're in, working in this tradition but the mainstream market doesn't care. They just want revenge in a gun. Or they want, you know, grand strategy with a certain historical setting or something. So the problem is that if you're not really thinking about the difference between the first people who come to you and the people who, where there's actually enough of them to actually pay your wages, you're going to die. <laughs> because basically you're building your brand and your IP and your gameplay for a very small part of the market that are super enthusiastic, hardcore users. And that's fine if you have a really small budget or if your goal is to make art. But if your goal is to make a sustainable studio that pays people wages for many years, you need to move towards the mainstream market as far as you can. Not necessarily all the way, but as far as you can. And those people are really not early adopters. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it pairs in perfectly with the next question that we had come in. So, you know, we're looking at genres and, and marketing personas and everything. Very good point. Move it a little bit towards mass market because, yeah, you're not. You're not going to hit anything huge unless you get it. But what about on the global market when we're looking at, you know, translations and cultural and all this stuff. What are, what are the gotchas for aiming your IP at a global market? Uh, when you say gotchas, does that mean what are your Issues. goals or what are the traps? No, what, what, are, what are the hurdles? For the, the global market. Well, one thing is, um, you know, if you're if you're in a really small car that you've built yourself, don't get in the truck lane, you know? We see that a lot. So people, you know, really small teams saying, we're going to do Overwatch. Right. So what's the problem with that? Well, the, the problem is that Overwatch owns that space in the market. They have spent 
millions, if not billions of dollars on, you know, catching people's attention, getting them into that world, getting them to love those characters, getting them to register and learn those gameplay systems and all that. And they, you know, totally immersed in that universe. On your budget, if you're in a small home-built car, you just can't compete. You're going to get run over. You're going to be, you know, highway pizza. Um, so it's a better idea to do something that's different, um, to do something that they can't get from the big one, big guys. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is that you... One of the advantages of, of actually, you know, having a local culture is that you may have something unique that the big guys don't latch on to. So there was an African user earlier, you know, there are, there's not a lot of games out there that are channeling African culture or African mythology or things like that. So you have a chance to make something different. The problem is, of course, that there's a hair, there's a fine line between making something different and making something that people just think is weird because they don't have any, you know, reference for what you're doing. They don't understand it. So you need to combine what can you do that's unique with something that's kind of universally recognizable, which is what we talked about earlier when we talked about relatability. It needs to be something that a big audience can relate to, but they haven't seen it before. Do that and it'll help at least. <laughs> so how closely should you follow Joseph Campbell's, the, God, what was it called? The, um, well, he's controversial the these days, right? I mean, by now he's, he's a, he's a relic of a, a patriarchal society. I'd say, um, the hero's journey. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways to do this. And that's one of them, you know, there's, there's many different screen gut writing gurus. There's many different mythologies. There's many different methods. Um, what he did was, which was useful and it is still useful was that he pointed out that, you know, human lives are basically the same, no matter which religion or which culture or which, whatever you grow up in. Um, so, so what he did was he almost he stacked mythologies and then he saw the patterns that were common among them. And that's a really smart way to get relatability because no matter whether which part of the world you're from, the human body hasn't changed for 60,000 years, right? We still go into puberty around the same time. We still go into, you know, relationships at around the same time. There's only so many issues you can have in life I wouldn't like to number them, but let's face it, they're not endless. So if you pick some that are reasonably common, then you actually have something that works across cultures, right? Whether you're building a, a, a horror game around African mythology or a love story around, I don't know, European Middle Ages, people go into puberty at the same time. People have conflicts with their parents and there's all these universal issues. So, so, so the point here is that Joseph Campbell is one of the ways you can open up those universal issues. Um, yeah, but that, but there are others as well. Many. It, and, and like you said, it all gets back to relatability at the end of the day, you know, because you can't have something that is just completely out there in space that no one can 
relate to. Yeah. Right. Well, well, the thing is that it also depends on what's your goal here. So our assumption is kind of that you want to build a sustainable studio. Where you have a group of people who are drawing wages every day, and maybe you're building some, some value in the company. If that's your goal, then you do need that doesn't have to be super broad, but you do need to be able to appeal to a size of audience. Otherwise, you're not going to make any money. But if your goal is to make art, then it's different. Then it's all about expressing something specific and the audience be damned, right? At least that's the pure form of it. So if you can get that funded, then there's nothing stopping you from doing that. And you should just go do it. But yes, if you want sustainability economically, you need to think about what will appeal to a broader audience and relatability is, is the way. All right. The, the anecdote that just popped in my head was when we were on vacation this summer, we went to the Van Gogh Museum in the Netherlands. And as we're about two levels up and it's in a completely open area, there was a kid, probably about four, that yells at the top of his lungs that he's seen better art at his school and that everything in here is old. It's old. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's a good one. So in that case, that kid, hilariously enough, could not relate to the subject matter at hand, and they were not the target demographic for, for Van Gogh's art. Mm, no. Uh, all right. So the number one is you have nothing to say. Yeah, it's kind of a controversial one. But, you know, the thing is that we're in, at its core, entertainment is art, right? At its core, it has to express something. If you look at the big um, franchises or the popular books or, or so on, there's something being said, right? Harry Potter, popular as it is, is not deep art, but I happen to think it's good, has something to say about oppression and bullying and so on. That is important. There needs to be something at heart here. And I think a lot of a lot of the advice we're giving here is pretty commercial and, you know, can be taken out as, as being cynical. But in the end, it needs to have a soul, right? There needs to be somebody in the company, and preferably more than one, who are trying to say something. Because that's where it gets that extra thing that gives it life. I think if you play God of War... I think there's a real, there's something being said here about father and son relationships. I'm not sure it's super deep on what goes on with the gods, but father and son relationships, there's something being said there. I don't need to know exactly what it is, but I can feel it. I can feel there's something there. And that's the kind of thing that gives resonance to a project across all the millions of decisions you have to make during these creative processes. And it's actually, I mean, it's actually where we start when we do our um, consulting, which is that let's start by talking about your artistic intent. What is it you're trying to say? Once we get that nailed, and often people aren't quite able to articulate it, and that's fair enough because, you know, it's a process. But figuring that out and getting it nailed is part of what makes the whole game coherent because, again, it's going to take years to make there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of creative decisions. And if if they don't get made with a clear vision in mind, you're going to end up with something that's just a mess. And messes don't really have that emotional resonance. Games are really complicated. So, you know, nailing that at the start and being really clear is, is important. 
All right, someone brought up something on the Discord, and it factors into a question. And it's meant this a so so many cultures that are interesting, but everyone focuses on the medieval era, Rome, or maybe samurai Japan. And the default answer to that is, well, because that sells. And that's, you know, but how far away do you, do you get to go from something that, you know, you know, is going to sell? It's like, I know a medieval RPG is going to sell, but there's a billion of them out there. How far are you able to stray from that before you get into the thing of, okay, well, no one really gives a crap about a caveman RPG or, you know, something along those lines. How, how much space do you have to play with outside of everything that's overpopulated? Well, I think you're the one who wrote, it depends under your name, right? <laughs> that's the um, motto of the whole show. I mean, uh, it depends on so many things. I think honestly, if dark souls can sell, you can go pretty far. I mean, that stuff is dark. I think um so i don't think it's about how far you go i think it's more about can you make it feel authentic and authentic is a big word to use um and it's something you you need to think about authenticity is does this feel like it could happen within the rules we've set up does it still feel human and you know my favorite example is game of thrones which which feels very authentic, even though it's pretty far out, right? We've got dragons and zombies and people changing faces and all kinds of stuff, but it feels really authentic. Now, why is that? Well, I'd, I'd posit it's two things they're doing. One is it's all about families, right? Every kingdom you go into is a new way of creating a dysfunctional family. It's about fucked up families. So there's a dwarf who kills his dad on the toilet because his dad has not been respecting him. There's a girl who doesn't want to be a girl. She wants to be a boy and play with swords. There's another girl who keeps going to bad marriages. These things are recognizable. These things are relatable. They feel authentic. And on top of that, Game of Thrones is all built on 15th century English court intrigues. Down to the nail. I mean, the Red Wedding happened in real life that's why it feels real even though it's so far out it actually happened and and you know every episode is just chock-a-block full of those things martin the writer is a history buff so all these things feel authentic even the wall is modeled on hadrian's wall which was an, an old roman wall so it feels authentic it's got real family problems it's got real historical events but it's all painted over with dragons and zombies and all that cool stuff so even though it's far out, the biggest audience in the world ever could relate to it and feel this is authentic. So I think that's my answer. My answer is you can go as far as you like, so long as you can make it relatable and make it feel authentic. Almost as far as you like. The, the funny thing about Game of Thrones is the part that felt the most, like I couldn't get my head around, it was not the dragons. It, it was not the zombie army that's coming across. It was the face changing thing. It was <laughs> like I could accept everything else as okay. Yeah, it's a dragon. I mean, that's going to torch troops. But turning a five foot one inch woman into an old man, I was just like, wait a minute, hold on. This is not. <laughs> this is this is <laughs> this breaking is your suspension. Of, 
yeah. <laughs> suspension of disbelief is what they they call that. I guess that broke it for me at work, but um, yeah, that's that's different. Um, but I think you know you look at games and and you know God of War is pretty far out in the latest God of War if you think about it. If you break it down and say this happens, then this happens, then this happens, it's pretty far out and it's not that logical. But it's all held together by that father son relationship, uh, which is deeply authentic and deeply felt. Um, you know, I remember when the when the newest one came out, not the newest one, the one before that. And there were YouTubers who were crying within the first seven minutes of playing. And why were they crying? Well, it was because they recognized their own relationship to their father in that hunting scene. It was just right there. Um, and there's no reason why you can't do that in, you know, little pixelated figures with speech bubbles. Of course you can. Oxenfree does it. Um, so, you know, this is where the art comes in. This is where the passion and expressing something that's true and honest and real is still important no matter how uh, ambitious you are or how much it's about technology it's still those things that really make it sing christian this has been fantastic i mean i'll tell you my my the one thing that i remember in terms of story hitting me hard was right after my son was born and you know in that stage where you're up all night feeding them and 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 because they have their sleep schedule as well walking watching the walking dead first season maybe when carl got shot and rick is like holding him and just running to this and i'm sitting there holding my like newborn son and i'm like oh my god it's like that that hit had that happened a year earlier it would not have hit with me nearly as much but i think I think there's a reason people stop watching horror movies when they have kids, right? I certainly did. Yeah, now I've just switched to true crime, which is arguably far worse. I mean, it's yeah. just we're not talking about you know monsters from other planets. We're talking about the monster that lives next to you. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just checking to make sure we got any more questions. But no, this has been fantastic, and and it is so important, and it is something that I think a lot of indie teams. Well, I'm not even going to say that because I see it from both sides with a lot of the teams we meet. I either see teams that are completely wrapped up in the story and that's all that matters to them. And then I see the teams that are like, okay, whatever, we'll put a, we'll put a story on it at the end. But you know, your point of factoring it in from the very beginning, hiring an expert you know, to do something and, and, and to champion it, even if it's not expert's the wrong word. Expert, if you can afford it, someone dedicated to it if yeah. you, know, if you can't. I think that is all just absolutely wonderful. And we do have another comment that's coming in now. So, oops, sorry, Dan. I'm an indie dev and I'm trying to apply what you said to my game, but I don't see a way to do it without expensive cutscenes and facial animations. Um, okay, so I, I don't know what your game is, but there's no reason why a really small speech bubble sh- shouldn't be emotional. You know, it doesn't have to be heavy. It can just be light touches. There was this little Nintendo-like exploration game about a year ago where you would just you were just walking around exploring and you met people and they would have little speech bubbles and so on. And it was just, the writing was just spot on, right? You could feel the character behind each speech bubble. You could feel that each one had its own tone of voice. You could feel that the things they said came would have been true if that person had been living in that hut for 10 years alone they would talk like that so 
you know, I don't, I don't think you need cutscenes. I don't think you need facial animation. I think you need good writing. Um, and the tricky thing in small teams about good writing is where do you find a good writer and how do you get a good writer to understand what you want to do with the game? And how does the writer get you to understand what he, she is trying to do with the story? And that's the real problem, I think. It's that there's a gap between the people who understand the gameplay and the tech and the people who understand the story. And you really need a bridge between those two. So, you know, again, my advice is find that storyteller, find somebody whose unique voice or adaptability fits your game and start building a real collaboration. Don't, you know, tell that person what to write because if you're not a story expert, you're probably making it worse. Make a real collaboration. It's, it's got to be like a band, right? You've got one person on the drums and, and one person on guitar, but they have to play the same tune. Uh, the problem often start happening if the person on guitar goes over and starts hitting the drum and says, do it like this, then it's probably not going to sound great. But of course, that you know, either you need really good people or you need a really honestly felt collaboration to work. I, I think that's what I got. I muted myself because I was typing. The guitarist can go beat on the drums and explain, you know, how it needs to be better. If that guitarist is Dave Grohl, if it's not, then yes, you're. Yes, you're but that's on. because Dave Grohl understands the drums. Yes, he's a world-class drummer, so he's allowed to do it because he understands it. The problem is when the person instructing the drums is not a drummer. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, that metaphor doesn't go all the way, but. Well, I mean, there's very, I mean, how many Dave Grohl's are there? That's that metaphor is going to work 99% of the time. The, yeah, exactly. the point that I always tell people too is that look, if a comic book can convey emotion right. and a novel can convey emotion, then a game can. Because, you know, with a comic book, you have art, you know, but it's flat, it's non linear. With a book, yeah. you have no art. It's just it's just words. So right. you can absolutely convey it. You just need a good writer, a good story person. I think comic books is a really good point. I've got tons of them. I think comic books are often closer to uh, games than either movies or uh, books. Um, because exactly, there's it's a visual medium, but there's no sound, right? So they have they have to be really efficient and really true in the way they talk. Um, yeah, there's a lot to learn there. And, and I can say from, we've worked with a lot of comic book companies and writers and comic book artists. And I can tell you the parallels between indie game development and indie comics is right. almost word for word. So wow. if you are a small studio and you can't afford or you don't know story experts, reach out to some of the indie comic books that you enjoy because I guarantee you they are going to be up for collaboration Aside from, you know, the uber expensive DCs and Marvels, look at the rest awesome. of those fantastic stories. Yeah. And they're willing to work with you. Um, question. And, and, and comics are incredibly efficient, right? I mean, being able to tell from one panel to the next panel to the next panel. I mean, where somebody who's writing books is probably, you know, they can write one sentence that costs more than your entire game. Yeah. Uh, you know, the comic book people won't do that because they know about the... The cost of a single panel. Mm -hmm.
can an individual, I got to I got to hit it down there again. Can an individual patent their creation as an IP before they start a company? Yes, but it costs a lot of money. Um, so the question is whether it's worth it. I mean, it depends on your situation. You can easily spend hundreds of thousands of dollars patenting something that then never becomes a success. So I would be worried about that, uh, spending the money when that money had probably been better spent elsewhere. I, the first thing I would do is, is look into your country's IP law, copyright law, because where I come from, I'm in Europe, I'm in Denmark. If an artist creates something, they own it. Unless they sign it away, they own it. So the burden in a court of law is really who created it first. So if you're really worried about that, you need to check this for your country. But part of it is just how do you ensure that you can prove that you invented it first? And one way to do that is to go to a lawyer with it in a sealed envelope and have them sign that this, I have received this on the 10th of May, 2023. And that can actually be sealed and registered. Okay, so now it's good away. So if somebody else comes in and says, we invented this, you say, well, it's actually in a vault with a date on it and a date stamp and so on. And you didn't need to spend a hundred thousand of dollars patenting it. You just need to be able to prove you invented it first. But again, check your local copyright law. But that's the general principle as far as I know. And that doesn't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. That just costs you whatever $20 FedEx package to your attorney or to an attorney. Right. And 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 the beer to get your family lawyer to do it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so from YouTube, what is the worst example of a mistake in game IP that you've ever seen? Oh God, I, but I, I can't answer that without insulting people, right? Um, but you do it as a that, constructive insult, Chris. <laughs> yes, constructive insult. That's my middle name. Um, so one thing that really, I mean, facepalm time, right? That's what we're talking about here. Is and you can you can figure out your own examples here. Is for example having a hit game with a really cool character and then making number two about a different character. That from an IP angle is just, what? You know, why would you do that? Well, it's our freedom of expression. We want to be artists, right? Okay, well then that's very, that's, that's your priority. But that goes against everything I know about how these things work. So you've had players spend sometimes hundreds of hours getting to love these characters and they understand them and they want to know more and they want to see more and they want to go back to that again and they want it fresh. That's what a franchise does, right? So imagine that they come to you and they say that the next Harry Potter book is going to be on a different school about some other kids. It's not really interesting, is it? I mean, and oh, the new James Bond film is going to be about Money Penny, and the agents are not going to be in it. So, so that's you know that's the biggest face palm for me. It's that when you have something and it works, you just dump it. Um, and I understand the the artistic uh, need and want to do something different, 
but from a company point of view, then you should probably, you know, do another game with that character and then do something different on the side. Because not only are you disappointing the fans, you're also putting your entire company at risk. Um, so, so that's the way I see it. It's not everybody who sees that. There is one other thing, which is changing genre, story genre. You've got to be really careful about that. Um, you know, if you were told tomorrow that they were making The Godfather Part 4 and it was called Godfather Part 4 Robot Apocalypse, I don't think I'd buy the ticket for that. You know, it's even, you could even put the same characters in. I, I don't think I would go because that's going to be horrible. And that's because, again, you, you're, you're messing with the genre. All right, so my counter-argument would be something like the Sniper Elite series or even Call of Duty, where you go from a war game to a zombie game. Or are those, like, adjacent genres enough that you can get away with it? Yeah, I think the thing is that the really, really big IPs get to bend the rules because they're so big. And there's so much marketing weight behind them. And there's so much of everything behind them that they don't really count anymore. They have different sets of rules. Um, so, I, I, I mean, that zombie stuff, was that was that mainly DLC or was it the main game? Uh, I know the Sniper Elite, they have their, uh, it's a separate series. It takes place in the same area. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I, instead of shooting Nazis, you're shooting zombies. I mean, so... Yeah. It's not a gigantic jump. But I mean, there are, there are outliers where anything can work, but I wouldn't recommend it. What, the thing is, the thing that a lot of us underestimate is expectations, right? What are people's expectations? And if you've established the expectation that this is a gangster movie or a war game or whatever, and you change that, you do it at your moral peril, when mortal peril when the next game comes. Because... The fans are sitting there waiting for the next gangster installment. And now it's a love story. And they're like, what? Um, you know, okay, zombies. Okay, I have to shoot something a little different. I mean, if you market it right, you can maybe warp their expectations over there. But you're taking a risk, for sure. What about things like, and I've read several of these books, and they're actually much better than I thought they would be. Things like the not spinoffs, but the take on um, like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies or the, right. you know, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter type stuff. Yeah, but that's, that, those are almost new properties, right? Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, that's, that's a new property, that's a new IP that's being established. It's not like everybody was waiting for Abraham Lincoln Part 2. And then, oh, my God, it's got vampires in it. No, this is a new property starting right there. And Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, it's kind of a spoof that went viral, right? Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's cool, but it's kind of a new property again, isn't it? I mean, it's not like it's the official Jane Austen book number X. A few hundred years have passed. So I think it's... I think it, Goes as a new property. All right. We got one more, and it's a big one, and we'll end on this one. Dan, right. I, I won't make you type all that out. So from Discord, how about on a live service CCG game when you have a set of characters and a story with them, 
And then in the next set of cards, you have a new set of characters and story, but then you return to the original set on the one year mark. How, so that you basically have one set of characters in play. How, basically, what if you, you have that original game with the story and the characters, you switch it, but then you bring it back and try to tie it all in in a third installment. I'm not sure. What is a CCG game? A card collectible? Yeah, yeah, collectible card games. Collectible card games. Collectible card games. I mean, it sounds a bit like something Marvel has been doing for many years in comics, right? Which is, oh my God, Superman is dead. Oh, wait, no, he isn't. No, he's not. Uh, you know, uh, so I'm not sure I understand the question. I think if, if we're talking CCG games, and not really IPs in the way that I understand IPs. I know people are trying to make some of them into IPs afterwards, but that's a different thing. Um, I don't think people buy CCG packages or expansion packs because of the story continuity. I, I don't think that's what it's about. Um, I think if you were trying very hard from the beginning to build an IP, then you would not do it. But since most people who make those games are not really in that business, I think it, it doesn't really matter. So it's important to say here that narrative IPs and IPs in general are not essential. You don't have to have an IP. You can have a game that's about triangles and squares, and you can have a success with that. No problem. You can have, you know, Counter-Strike is not an IP. It's earning a lot of money. Well, at least it was the last time I checked. So the IP is not essential. It's an additional business model that you can put on top of the business model of selling games. And then you have two business models. So you can easily choose, we don't want IP. That's not what we're about. Great, go for it. But if you do want that sustainability uh, on top, if you do want the ability to, the more games you sell, the more value you build in your IP, then you need to think like this. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm really not saying it's essential and it doesn't go for all games. But if you choose it, then there are some principles and some, some, how shall I put it? There are some tissues of consistency that you can stack. And the more of them you can stack, the more, the stronger your IP gets. And that is stuff like having a character, having an emotional journey, you know, having a universe that's big enough that you can come back to it, having an ownable tentpole character, positioning it in the market, understanding your competition, appealing to the right people when you communicate and so on. The more of them you can stack, the stronger it gets. But it's a choice. Of course, it is. It always is. Kristen, thank you so much. This has been awesome. And now I have to go Google up what Winnie the Pooh blood and honey is because that's amazing uh never heard of it i haven't either but now i'm gonna find out i think you just made it up oh well shit i was actually excited about that <laughs> yeah damn it does it sounds like it would be a good game yeah so thank you so much christian for coming on here and thank you thanks for tuning in today everyone we hope you had a blast and found our podcast enlightening to stay in the loop of the latest industry secrets make sure to sign up for our newsletter at indiegame.business and it's packed with exclusive tips and updates that will give you a competitive edge in your field. And if you are looking to expand your professional network, 
the Winnie the Pooh thing is real, apparently. It's real. Yeah. That's what if I'm you're looking to expand yes. your professional network and connect with like-minded individuals, don't miss out on joining our lively, amazing Discord community at discord.gg slash business. It's a perfect place to engage in stimulating discussions, share ideas, and collaborate with fellow enthusiasts. And there's a bunch of industry experts on there. It's amazing. And before you go, don't forget to check out our Indie Game Business merch. We got merch. Um, streamlabs.com slash Indie Game Business slash merch. Your choice of fantastic merch not only brings joy to you, but also empowers us to give back even more. So indulge in the new connection collection and let's grow together as we fuel the indie spirit. Uh, it's a real movie, a horror movie that came out this year. So, <laughs> yes. And it's All Cocaine right. Bear 2. Oh, my God. I still haven't seen that. I plan on it. <laughs> All right. Christian, thank you so much. Everyone else, we will be back next week, I believe. And then we're on a little break because several of us will be over in Germany for Gamescom. And then we'll be back once we return. Um, but yeah, that's it for today. Everybody awesome. have a wonderful weekend. Yes. Weekend. Bye, everyone. How many things? Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.